You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. It's time to get Ian up and um, share the word. So just as he comes up, we'll just pray. Um, Father, we thank you for all your great testimonies. We thank you, Lord, that there's many different stories uh, of your goodness, Father, of how you're working, Lord. We thank you for your blessing, Father, Lord. We thank you for your grace. And we just pray you continue to work in all those situations, Jesus. Continue to lead them. And we thank you that you are faithful in all areas. We just pray, Lord, as Ian shares the word today, Lord, we pray our hearts would be changed, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would mold us to be more like you, Lord, and and continue to help us to represent you well. Would you bless Ian as he brings the word? Amen. Thank you. Testing, testing. How do we sound? Good. Good morning, everybody. Morning. As you know, we've been working our way through Ephesians, and we've looked at Ephesians 1 and 2 the last couple of weeks, and uh, in those two chapters, there is an incredible list of things that God has done for us by his grace, for all those who have put their trust in Christ. It's my opinion, it's my conviction, in fact, that we need to properly grasp these truths if we're going to stand firm in our faith in a world that becomes increasingly dark. Um, I was talking to someone just uh, the other day, I think it was, and talking about fear-mongering in Christian circles. And, And there's a danger that when we talk about how dark the world is becoming, that we can do some fear-mongering, we can get people terrified of actually facing the world. But Ephesians should be working the opposite in our life. It should be working a boldness in us that we recognise that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as they say. Um, But we are called to be lights for the gospel, lights for Christ in that darkness. And Ephesians will help us to stand firm in that turmoil and darkness of the world. And it's not just that we need to stand firm, we must be beacons, as I said, of light in that darkness. We must shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have rejected him or ignored him. While we shine the light of the gospel to those who are unbelievers, we need to shine the light of the gospel to believers as well. We all need it, every day. There's not a day goes by that we don't need the gospel. We need to be reminded of God's great mercy and his love for us. We need to be encouraged by other believers to stay the course. It's too easy to become overwhelmed and turn your back on your faith or put your head down in the foxhole and hide. We need the encouragement of other believers. We need the church. We need each other. We need City Edge Church. We need Hillsong. We need these churches. We need the church if we're going to survive. And that's what Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about. So I won't take time to recap those incredible things God has done for us, but by my list there's more than 30 different things in the first two chapters alone that God has done for or in believers those who have put their trust in Christ. And that's just the first two chapters. We're not even halfway through the book yet. 
But let's get into Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul gets that far and he changes direction. It's like he's, he's got this thought, he's going to burst into prayer and suddenly he stops and as we'll see in verse 2, he, he gets into something completely different. And uh, not entirely different, I shouldn't say completely different. But uh, something he's just been talking to them about in chapter 2 has stirred him to put his prayer on hold for a moment and get into the reasons why uh, he's so excited about praying for them, for one thing, but also how he came to understand all these great truths. And so he he says in in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, for you. And that grace we also hear about in verses 7 and 8. We'll get to that in a little while. Assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Mystery is a key word in Ephesians as well. How you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Seems like a strange choice by God that he would take one of the most highly trained Jewish theologians, scholars, and send him to the Gentiles, the ones who despised the Jews. And interestingly, God chose Peter, the impetuous, uneducated fisherman, as the apostle to the Jews. Isn't that typical of God, though? God likes to take what is weak to show his strength. He uses weak vessels to display his power. That fact alone should be a great encouragement to you and I. God always prefers to use a weak vessel over a strong one. Have you noticed that? We see it in the Bible time and time again. But God granted to Paul a stewardship, a responsibility to take the gospel of God's grace to the, in Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And I might just mention in passing that he's given each and every one of us a stewardship of God's grace as well. We don't have it in the same way that Paul and the other apostles got it. Paul had a direct revelation from Christ. We have that revelation in the word. But we still have a stewardship of God's grace to take to the world. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Way back in the opening verses of this letter, Paul made mention of a mystery. We've just read a couple of verses that talked about the mystery. In one nine, chapter 1, verse 9, he said there that God is making known the mystery of his will. Now, in modern usage, 
we think of a mystery as something that's kept secret, something that's hidden. And there are various cults and organisations and other things where you have to join and you have to work your way in to discover the secrets of the mystery. They're not available to outsiders. But that's not the way the Bible talks about mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something that was hidden and is now made known. There's a saying about the Bible that says, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. That's, That's the mystery that Paul's writing about. These things were hidden in times past, but now they're made known. That mystery in the Old Testament is part of the reason why Nicodemus struggled to understand what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3. He only had the Old Testament to understand what God was planning. And in the Old Testament, God's plans were only hinted at. And over a period of time, with increasing revelation, as the prophets and the writings uh, began to appear, the, uh, the plan was made more clear. But it was never entirely clear in the Old Testament. But when Jesus came, all that changed. Jesus told his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. With this change of relationship comes a change of knowledge and understanding. Now the things that were previously obscured previously hidden, have been brought out into the open. God's plan, in fact, is there for anyone to read, Christian or atheist, friend or enemy. It's laid out there for anyone to read. God's plan of salvation is no longer a secret. It's no longer a mystery. It's been revealed. And it's laid out that plan, as I said, for all to see. But that plan is not probably what anyone really expected. And it's pretty hard for people to accept, especially those Westerners amongst the Christian church who are so used to being uh, self-motivated, self-empowered, individuals, independent. We don't need anything. We've got everything. We don't need all this. But the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's a surprise. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. All the Jews crossed by on the other side of the road, and it was the Samaritan that came and actually helped a Gentile, one of the despised nations. They had no love for each other, Jew and Gentile. The Jews were God's chosen people. And chosen people tend to be arrogant, tend to feel superior to everyone around them. The Jews were fiercely monotheistic, at least the ones who were serious about their faith. Their culture, their history, their language, their religion set them dramatically apart from the surrounding nations. The Gentiles, though, were pretty much the opposite of that. The Gentiles, which is every other race that is not Jewish, were happily polytheistic. They would worship anything and everything. They weren't very discriminatory in their worship practices. 
They would worship kings, pharaohs, emperors, Caesar, quite happily. They had a pantheon, a collection of gods that they were happy to worship. And in some of the ancient Gentile religions, prostitution and child sacrifice were common features of them. They were practices forbidden by God and despised by the Jews. A Jew wouldn't even eat with a Gentile, let alone consider him a brother. So there's only two chances that Jews and Gentiles would get together as friends, as family. Buckley's and none. (laughs) There's no way this would happen. Which makes it all the more remarkable and all the more mysterious that God's plan would involve making the two groups one. That's exactly what God's plan was though. And it's God's plan still to this day to make Jew and Gentile one. The Gentiles are to become fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, which means for us there's no room for racism in Christians. There's no room for racism in the church. There's no place for arrogance, snobbery, exclusivity. Our doors have to be open to everyone, even to the atheists. Where are they going to go to hear the gospel if they don't come through our doors? Whether our doors are this church here, this physical place, or our doors are our homes or the workplace where we're open to tell them about Christ to tell them about this mystery that's been revealed. So if that was God's plan from the beginning to bring Jew and Gentile together, why did he take so long to do it? He could have done it thousands of years before, surely. He could have done it from creation if he wanted to. Why not implement his plan earlier? There's some questions obviously we can't fully answer. I don't know the mind of God, but I've got a couple of ideas Several ideas, actually, of why it may have been that God waited so long. You know, the Gentiles were never really entirely excluded from joining together with the Jews. And in fact, the very first Jew was a Gentile. Did you realise that? Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, was not Jewish. He was called out of idolatry. He was a polytheistic worshipper when he was called by God. God uses used a Gentile to establish the Jewish faith. Interesting thought. Right from the beginning it was founded on the Gentile. And Abraham wasn't the only non-Jew in the family tree of the Jewish people. There are plenty other important Gentiles in Jewish history including a number of significant ones in Jesus' own family tree one of them being a prostitute in Jesus' family tree. The Jews were never meant to be an exclusive group. They were charged with keeping themselves separate from the the races and the nations and the practices around them. They were charged with keeping themselves pure and undefiled by the idolatry that surrounded them. But the Lord said to Abraham when he called him, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
And him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God called the first Jew to bless the Gentiles. God's not in a hurry like we are either. You ever notice that? He doesn't mind taking his time to get things done. He has a bigger and better plan than we could imagine. He doesn't mind dragging things out way past when we think it's time, Lord, that you did something. And the delay in implementing his plan reveals to us the faithfulness of God to his people. You don't establish faithfulness in five minutes, do you? Faithfulness takes years. It takes generations. It takes thousands of years to establish faithfulness. Along those lines, God's plan was always to bring two groups together in Christ Jesus, not independently of him, in Christ Jesus. We read back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it said, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. There was a right time in God's plan for this to happen. It tells us in Romans 5, while we were still helpless, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not too soon, not too late. And as Ernest said this morning, God shows up at just the right time. At the end of the day, we need to recognise that God knows what he's doing. He's not bumbling along in the dark trying to figure things out as he goes. He knows what he's doing. If he chose to wait thousands of years to properly unite Jew and Gentile, he had a perfectly good reason for doing it. Paul goes on in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Would you say Paul was successful in preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles? We wouldn't be sitting here, I don't think, if he was a failure at that. Paul was a success at preaching the unsearchable riches of of Christ to the Gentiles. We wouldn't have most of the New Testament if Paul wasn't a success doing that. And Paul was successful at the task because God had given that grace to him. Have you ever thought what that grace given to Paul looked like might surprise us when we think of success as God's grace to make us famous to allow us to conquer all our enemies to fill out fill up our churches to overflowing to sell out stadiums on speaking tours to give us best-selling books in western thought They're the marks of success. You know, that's not quite how Paul describes the grace that God has given him. The grace God has given Paul, he describes pretty well in 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes, 
Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. (laughs) Careful, Paul. You might start sounding pretty arrogant. Pride goes before a fall, you know. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, Paul says. I'm talking like a madman, he goes on. For with far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received the at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Does that sound like grace given to you? It doesn't from our perspective, does it? It sounds like failure. But Paul's grace, the grace he celebrated, rejoiced in, was beatings, persecution, stoning, imprisonment, rejection. What a bizarre grace. There's a price to following Christ. We know that. Paul was a prisoner because of his determination to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Are you willing to pay that price? Am I willing to pay that price? It's a serious decision we have to make. Am I willing to pay the price? I hope and pray that I am. But I don't dare put my confidence in the flesh. I know myself too well to know that if it's up to me, I'll get frightened, I'll back down, I will hide. I can't do it in my own flesh. I've led a pretty comfortable life, as have we all. None of us really have suffered persecution. None of us have really known serious opposition. And if I, was, if I tried to do it in my own strength, I'd be overwhelmed by the task. Thankfully, though, I don't have to. You don't have to. We have the Holy Spirit to sustain us, to empower us to stand. We have the word of God that will become like a fire in our bones if we get it in there. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, Paul said. Woe to us if we have this in our bones and we don't preach the gospel. Last week I told you one of the reasons God was bringing Jew and Gentile together into one body, the church, was to show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace in the coming ages to the powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he tells us this again as we continue to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. Not through lone rangers, through the church. That's you and I together, along with every other believer. God's plan is to bring people of every tribe, tongue and nation together to form one new body. One new body, not two, not 200, not two million. One new body in Christ Jesus. We are united by our faith in Christ to every believer on this planet and every church on this planet. Harley and Tish experienced the joy of visiting other people in their churches overseas while they're on holidays. And they talked about the connection. Harley talked about the connection he had with them. There's a connection because we are one body in Christ. So we need to be careful how we think about and talk about the church. And I don't just mean City Edge Church, City Edge Church, I mean all churches. We have to be careful how we talk about them. One writer has pointed out that the church today is an outcrop of eternity. I like that thought. We are an outcrop of eternity. A picture of what God will one day do in fullness when the times have reached their fulfilment. Assuming this writer is correct, I think he is, we ignore, reject or despise the church today at our peril. Watch your tongue. Watch your tongue when you talk about his precious bride that he purchased with his blood. Remember the church was God's idea, not man's. And when did God come up with this idea? In eternity past, before creation. The church is not plan B because plan A failed. The church is always plan A. God's plan was always to unite Jew and Gentile together to display his manifold wisdom. Now manifold is not a word we use much anymore either. Unless you're working on a car and you pull the manifold off the engine... But manifold means multifaceted, many-sided. A good picture of that is a beautiful diamond ring. When you buy a diamond ring, it's got all these facets cut into it. And they reflect light differently from every angle. They sparkle when you show them around. And from every angle, that diamond is beautiful. So it is with a multifaceted, the manifold wisdom of God from every angle, it reflects something different. And from every angle, it's beautiful. Paul goes on in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I said at the start, there are more than 30 different blessings that God has graced us with already mentioned in Ephesians, and we're only halfway through. Everything from being made alive from spiritual death at the beginning of our spiritual life, through to a guaranteed inheritance in heaven, and everything in between. Can you see that if God has done so much for us, if he has so abundantly demonstrated his love and grace for us, that we might have cause to be bold and confident in our approach to him. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I ask you not to lose heart, Paul goes on. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul suffered to bring them the gospel. We've just heard him talk about what he suffered to bring them the gospel. And he was still suffering in prison at the time when he wrote this. But don't lose heart, Paul says. I'm not concerned about it. It's my privilege to suffer for you, Paul says. It's a price Paul gladly paid to preach Christ crucified to the Gentiles. But it should come as no surprise to us that there's a cost of following Christ. Jesus told his followers exactly that many times. He even told them that the religious leaders would kill them, thinking they were doing God a favour. If the religious leaders would kill the followers of Christ, why would we ever imagine that the world around us, our society, would be any more accommodating to us? So don't lose heart. Whatever Paul suffered then, whatever Christian leaders might be suffering now, and some of them suffer incredibly in some nations, whatever suffering is happening is for your glory and for God's glory. You may recall back in chapter 1, Paul broke out in a spontaneous prayer for the Ephesians, and he started that prayer off with, for this reason, that's back in verse 15 of chapter 1. And now, in verse 14, he picks up again the prayer that he broke off at the start of this chapter. And it's a lesson for us in how to pray. When I listen to my own prayers and I compare them to the prayers of Paul or others in the Bible, I realise how shallow my prayers can be. And even how lacking in faith and how lacking in substance my prayers are. Both convicting for me and challenging for me. Have you ever prayed for someone and asked, Lord, I pray your blessings on this person? I've done that plenty of times. I still do. But what do we mean by that vague phrase, pray your blessings? A lot of the time we mean not very much at all, except maybe a Christianized version of I'm sending positive thoughts your way. A nice sentiment, maybe, but really meaningless. In contrast, Paul's prayers are specific. They're not vague, they're not wishy-washy. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Interesting thought. But you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is work within us. The power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ. Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul can never be accused of vague prayers. His prayers are always based on the promises of God. They are always based on the truths of Scripture. In chapter 3, he prays that God may strengthen you within by his Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, so that you may comprehend the vastness of the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. If we look back to the prayer that Paul prayed back in chapter 1, we would see that he prayed that God would give wisdom by his spirit, grant revelation of the knowledge of him, that God would open the eyes of our hearts, that he would show us the hope to which he has called us, and that he would show us the riches of our glorious inheritance, and that he would reveal to us the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. That's just in Ephesians alone, in three chapters. If we look further afield in Paul's letters, we would also see him pray for peace and unity among the saints, for a growing love for others, for righteousness and purity, for opportunities to minister to others, for overflowing praise and thanks to God, that he and we would have boldness to proclaim the gospel that God would complete the work he has begun in us. He prayed for peace, the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds and that we would walk in a manner worthy of him, that we would bear fruit in every good work, that we would have endurance and patience with joy, that we would be kept blameless by God till the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prayed for our strength and protection from the evil one. He said that we should pray for our political leaders, that we may live peacefully. And there's much, much more in the prayers of Paul alone in the New Testament. There's a website that has compiled all of Paul's prayers into one page and I'll put a link in the newsletter on our church website to that. I think you'll find it instructive. One thing we can be certain of when we pray is that if we pray according to what God has said and promised, we can have confidence in his answer. God will always do what he says he's going to do. If we pray according to our ideas, our wishes and our desires, there's no guarantees 
God may choose to answer them because of his great love and mercy for us. He may choose to answer them because we accidentally coincide with his will in our prayers. Or he may choose to say no because he has a different plan, a better plan. Prayers that don't align with God's promises may be little more than wishful thinking. So what's the lesson for us in this? The more closely we align our prayers with God's word and his promises, the more confidence we can have that he will grant our prayer. Remember James said, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And he also said, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If we ask for things that God has not promised, surely we must have some doubts when we ask. And if we have doubts, how then can we expect to receive? The only things we can actually ask for without doubt are the things God has promised that he will do. So the more closely we align our prayer with God's word and God's promises, the greater will be our faith that they'll be granted. It actually seems like a pretty simple equation when you put it that way, doesn't it? But how often we get it wrong. We are all stewards of the revealed mystery of God's grace, as I said earlier. My prayer is that these truths of the gospel, new life, salvation, redemption, adoption, peace with God, one people in Christ, guaranteed inheritance, all of these things and more will be engraved so deeply on our hearts and on our minds that we will burn with a desire to tell others about them. It's only as we, individuals, and as the gathered church, remain anchored on the solid rock of Christ and stand firm on the truth of God's word that we'll be able to show the world what it's missing out on. We must be lights. We must be lighthouses. We're in dark and stormy times. We must be lighthouses. Have you ever noticed... They don't build lighthouses on the sandy beach. I wonder why. Lighthouses are always built up on the high rocky points. They're visible for miles around to stop the ships running aground. That's what we've been called to. To be built on the rock and shine the light. And we do it together, friends. We do it as the collected church, the gathered saints. We do it together. Together we are to make known the manifold wisdom of God to the world and to the rulers in heavenly places. Will you join me this morning in committing to be a light in a dark and broken world together with other believers? Now I'm assuming you've all put your trust in Christ, but if you haven't, why won't you do it this morning? There's never been a better time. He invites you to put your trust in him today and then you too will understand and benefit from this great mystery that's been revealed. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, would you do your work so thoroughly in us that we feel compelled to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others? Would you be a fire, your word be a fire that burns in our bones, Lord? Grant us, Lord, a spirit of wisdom. Write within us a revelation of the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see the inheritance you've called us to, the inheritance you've prepared for us, the inheritance you are keeping secure for us. Show us, Lord, the immeasurable greatness of your power. Strengthen us within, Lord, by that same power. Lord, I pray that Christ will dwell richly in our hearts. Keep us rooted and grounded in love for you, Lord, for your saints and for the lost. Give us the confidence, the boldness that comes with knowing the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love for us. And fill us with all your fullness. Fill us with your fullness, Lord, that we may take this good news to where it's most needed. Lord, we carry these treasures in jars of clay. We carry them humbly, worshipfully, and we recognise our deep, deep dependence on you every day. But Lord, we carry them to your glory and in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.